Before we begin our study this morning, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. <clears throat> Hanukkah can be for us a message of hope during times of crisis. Hanukkah reminds us that what has been taken from us can be restored. At Hanukkah, we remember that the Seleucid Greeks had conquered the land of Israel and they defiled the Jerusalem temple. The spiritual life, the ethnic freedom of the Jewish people were almost completely lost. The Torah, the prophets, the writings, the Holy Scriptures were made illegal by the government. To have a Torah scroll in your possession, remember this is before the printing press, to have a Torah scroll was a capital offense. To gather as we're gathering today could have cost you your life. To follow the way of the Lord was so dangerous. The temple was no longer a place dedicated to the worship of the God of Israel, it had become defiled, it was a place of idolatry. The Jerusalem temple had been corrupted into a temple for Zeus. A pig was sacrificed on the altar to consummate that. For everyone who valued the faith and the traditions of Israel, it looked like there was no hope like there was no future for the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, and for the covenant that we had with God. Many Jews were assimilating into the Hellenistic culture. Religious liberties had not only become endangered, they had been lost. Brit Milah, the covenant of circumcision, became illegal. Jews who wanted to assimilate invented a procedure to reverse the visible sign of circumcision. And that was so they could participate in the gymnasium, the Greek cultural exercise place that called for naked exercise. It was a way they would fit into the Hellenistic culture. Hiding Jewishness is one sign that Jewish people are living in fear or giving in to the pressure of assimilation. And I think this is one of the reasons why I want to encourage you to light a Hanukkah every night and celebrate Hanukkah and express confidence and boldness in your own home. And with boldness, post pictures on the social networks that you're a part of, and even put your Hanukkah in the window for neighbors to see. When we think about how bad it was, and then we think about the fact that there was a Hanukkah victory, it helps us understand that God knows how to turn things around. And in fact, the, fa the fact that we exist, that we are here, is evidence that that turnaround is still a blessing. So you might smile at the person sitting next to you and tell them, you're evidence. You are evidence. You are evidence. And because we're here, believers in the God of Israel and the Messiah, 
We're freely worshiping the Lord. We're reading from Torah. We're honoring Messiah. We're gathering in our synagogue. This is a way that we are demonstrating that the Lord had the last word at Hanukkah. We do recall the Seleucid Greeks, the fact that they had conquered the land of Israel and defiled the Jerusalem temple. It was a place of idolatry. The Seleucid emperor Antiochus Epiphanes considered himself to be the personification of God, God in physical form. The epiphany of God was one of his titles, the manifestation of God. In fact, some of the Roman Caesars considered themselves to be the manifestations of God. And the Egyptian pharaohs, the same. And so when the Maccabees revolted against Antiochus, they were reclaiming the Jerusalem temple for God, and they were also standing up against all those counterfeits who had proclaimed that they were God in the flesh. The temple was dedicated again to the God of Israel, and it was time to clean up. It was time to clean up not just the temple, it was the time to clean up everyone's lives and to get everyone's hearts in the right direction, to reorient everyone not to the Hellenistic culture, but to the culture that had come through the work that God was doing in the Jewish people for all these years. And so I like to say it was as if the Lord said, clean up on aisle nine, if you know what I mean. There was a mess, and it was time for a cleanup. And Hanukkah is still a time for a cleanup. It's a time to renew the life of faith. Hanukkah, the word Hanukkah means dedication. It marks the rededication of the Jerusalem temple. It also marks, as I've said, the rejection of all those powerful people who claim to be gods and the manifestation of God. And so it's significant that we understand that it was on Hanukkah that Yeshua speaks plainly and clearly in the Jerusalem temple. Yeshua uses Hanukkah to state very clearly that he is the Messiah. In the New Testament writings, we read about the Hanukkah story in what chapter of the Gospel of John? Your turn to answer. Chapter 10. Those of you who got that, you get to go first in the lines for donuts. How about that? <laughs> Every one of us should know John chapter 10. We should be familiar with it. It's the only place in the Bible that mentions Hanukkah because Hanukkah was a historic holiday that took place after the writings of the Tanakh and before the coming of Yeshua. And so it's interesting that the apostles recorded this, but it's even more interesting that Yeshua chose Hanukkah as a very important day. People were asking Yeshua to be very simple and clear. Just tell us plainly, they said, are you the Messiah? Clarity. 
simplicity. Just tell us. That's what they said they wanted. And so they asked it this way, are you the one? That's what people ask Yeshua in Jerusalem. So let's turn to John chapter 10, starting in verse 22. And I'm going to help you fix your Bibles if they're broken. You can check your Bible translation because it may be different. Here's, here's a good translation. At that time, the Feast of Hanukkah took place in Jerusalem. Okay, your Bible may say the Feast of Dedication. If you have the NIV, it may say that and then have a footnote at the bottom of the page that says that is the Feast of Hanukkah. I've got an opinion about that. I think the translation should have been more clear. It doesn't take a footnote. Put it straight in the text. Let it be clear, the Feast of Hanukkah. It was the Feast of Hanukkah. Verse 23, it was winter, and Yeshua was walking in the temple area in the portico of Solomon. Some Judeans then surrounded him and began saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now, just want to check a few things with you. How do you say Messiah in Hebrew? Mashiach. Mashiach, that's right. And how many of those people who were talking to Yeshua do you think were speaking English? Zero, that's correct. Extra donuts for you. How many of you think that they were speaking Spanish? Zero, that's right. They were speaking to him in Hebrew. Now, do you know how to say Mashiach in Greek? Anybody? Christos. That's right. And the first people, the first Jews to use Christos as a substitute for Mashiach were the translators of the Septuagint. They were taking the Jewish scriptures written in Hebrew and translating them into Greek. And when they came to the word Mashiach, they translated it Christos. It really is a substitute word that sort of meant smeared with oil rather than oil poured down, but it was close enough. And the Jews that were reading it understood that whenever they saw the word Christos, it was referring to Mashiach, not to someone else. So if your translation says, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly, you can fix that. Just a little thin line through that, and then above write Messiah or Hamashiach. Verse 25, Yeshua answered them, I told you, and yet you do not trust me. I told you, I already told you, I have told you, I did tell you. So many different ways that you could translate that. Yeshua is saying, I've been asked this before, or I've tried to communicate it already. I already have told you this, I am the Messiah. And yet you don't trust me. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. So Yeshua was saying, what I do on behalf of my Father, that's the evidence. 
That's the answer. Verse 26, but you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. You don't trust me. You don't believe me. You don't believe my answers. I've given you answers, but you don't believe me. You've asked this question before, but you don't believe me. And I just want to make this more human and understandable to some of us. How many of you have little children who will ask you more than once for something? And they will give you, you will give them the answer, and they don't like it. And so a little while later, they'll come back and ask you again. How many of you are familiar with children that, that do that? And how many of you, let's be honest, were children that did that? And you ask and you ask because you don't like the answer. In a way, Yeshua is saying something like that. He said, you've, you've asked, I'm telling you, but you don't believe me. And he says, you're not part of my flock because if you were part of my flock, you would be people who did believe me because the people who are in my flock are those who believe me. They hear me and they trust me. And if you were already trusting me, you already would be part of my flock. Verse 27, Yeshua says, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. So he's saying to them, you don't listen to me, you don't put into practice what I tell you, you don't do what I tell you, you don't follow me. You go in a completely different direction. Now I think this is spiritually important because many times people will ask difficult religious or spiritual or even philosophical questions. And I want you to understand that even if you give a good answer, that doesn't mean everyone will be satisfied with the answer. Because people want to do what they want to do. And so if they want to be open to the Lord and learn more, they'll have one response. But if they don't, you can give them the very best answer and they will just keep in the same opinion that they've had. Now, everybody who's ever been on Facebook or Twitter, now X, knows this. It's really hard to change anybody's mind on those platforms. How many of you can verify that? Yeah. But that's because of human nature. Because when people's hearts are being opened up, they think and act differently. Verse 28. I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now this last statement is very, very important. The Father and the Son are one. How do you say one in Hebrew? Echad. That's right. Extra donuts for you. Echad. Messiah is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. This is very important in the context of Hanukkah and the Jerusalem temple. I want you to, to get a hold of this as best you can. This is the place that others, Antiochus Epiphanes, 
had said belonged to other gods. This was the, the place that was ruled over and defiled by those who did not trust the God of Israel and did not proclaim that the Messiah of Israel was coming and were not in favor of the liberty of the Jewish people in Jerusalem, but they were rather declaring that they themselves were the manifestation of God. And so Yeshua goes on to that exact place that had been defiled in times past. And he says, the Father and I are one, we're echad. And he is continuing with that great proclamation of the Shema, that Adonai is echad. And so he's proclaiming two foundational truths. He is Messiah, and he and the Father are one. Now, some people heard Yeshua's answer, and for them, I think it was good news, because they were ready to listen to him and to follow him. And other people heard the same answer, but for them, it was bad news, because they interpreted these answers as blasphemy, or they took offense with the answer. They were not ready to listen to Yeshua. They were not ready to follow him. And whatever Yeshua said to such people was used against him. They were not blessed because they were taking offense with Yeshua. And that showed the condition of their hearts and the condition of their minds. So I think Hanukkah is really a good time to ask important and foundational questions about spiritual life, about God, about Messiah, and what we're going to do when we get answers to these questions. It's one thing to ask God to reveal to you if Yeshua is the Messiah. It's another thing to be ready when he does to start following him. And I say that from personal experience. I prayed to the Lord at a certain point in my life, and I said, if Yeshua is real. I want to know. And I will do what's appropriate. And if he's not, excuse me for asking. I've got to get this settled. Amen. That was pretty much what my prayer was. And I was saying to the Lord, if you show me that he's real, I will respond. Well, when it came about that he did show me, my first response was, oh, no. It took me months to work through some of the challenging issues. I think Hanukkah is a Jewish holiday that helps us think clearly about who we are, what we are, who God is, and what we're going to do in light of him. So think about this. Yeshua uses the Jewish holiday at the Jewish temple in the Jewish capital of the Jewish state to clearly declare he is the Jewish Messiah. For about 17 centuries, the last 17 centuries or so, maybe even a bit longer, there's been a spiritual force at work. It's sort of like the Hanukkah spirit. It demands that Jewish when I say the Hanukkah spirit, I, I don't mean the victorious Hanukkah spirit. I mean the spirit that tried to force Jews into assimilation and force Jews to give up their way of life with God. 
to hide their Jewishness or abandon it. And I think for these 17 centuries, that spiritual force has been demanding that Jewish believers abandon their people, abandon their Jewish identities, and take on the identity of whatever the dominant Gentile culture is in which they live. Religiously, the Jews who believed in Yeshua in times past were pressured. They were even ordered to abandon Jewish lifestyle and practice and to assume a Gentile expression of faith. But here's the good news. We're living in a time of favor. The time to favor Zion has come. And God is using this season of favor to restore the Jewish believer to his own family and to his own people. Now, it is true that Yeshua does bring division, but it is also true that those who leave mother, father, sister, brother, houses in this world will receive them back in this world too. So the estrangement is not permanent. I like 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 14 is one of my wife's favorite scriptures. It's become one of mine. For God does not take life, but he devises ways that the estranged may return. So this is the day in which the Lord is smiling upon us. He's lifting his head up to us. He's giving us favor. And I want to tell you that while Jews can belong to many different denominations and confessions, something marvelous happens in our time when a visible remnant of Jewish believers assembles in a Messianic congregation. In Messianic Jewish synagogues, Jewish life and identity can be expressed at the congregational level. And in such synagogues, Jewish life and identity can also be nurtured in families and at the individual level. And I want you to think about this. Think about Jewish people who have had their Jewish souls awakened when they came to faith in Yeshua, and they saw the Jewish identity of Yeshua, and it had such power of transformation. It, it cascades and ripples and affects many ideas and understandings we have. And as a result, it's far more common that Jewish believers in Messianic synagogues become what our family might think of as better Jews by being more observant of traditional Jewish standards after they have a revelation of the Jewish Messiah. Frequently, it's the Messianic Jew who is nowadays the most observant, the most knowledgeable, the most committed to passing on their Jewish identity to the next generation. And while our brothers or our sisters may be moving from conservative Judaism to reform Judaism to unaffiliated Judaism, to no Judaism, the Messianic Jew is finding life in a relationship with the God of Israel and the Son. And think about this. Every Messianic Jew so far has heard the good news and believed it. That's what makes us who we are. Paul said he was not ashamed but he was persuaded that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. And I can say I'm also persuaded. 
I've seen so many lives transformed. And when we talk about the power of God, I can't help but think of that passage in the Amidah called the Gevorah, where God's power is extolled. And in every case, the power of God is the power to heal. It's the power to restore. It's the power to renew. It's the power to revive, not to destroy. So transformed lives are powerful witnesses. If the Jewish Messiah changed your life, then you have something good to share with others. And I want to say to you, chazak, be strong. Not only is the Jewishness of Yeshua being restored and the Jewish identities of Jewish believers, but the Jewish root of Christian faith is becoming restored and is becoming quite popular. Now, the root is Jewish for two reasons. First, the root is Yeshua himself. He was born a Jew. He died a Jew. He's chosen an eternal identity as a Jew. He was circumcised on the eighth day, according to the scriptures. He was brought to the temple for Pidyon Haben, the redemption of the firstborn. He was raised in an observant Jewish household with two Israeli-born Jewish parents. He observed Shabbat, all the Jewish biblical holidays, and even Hanukkah, as we just read. He taught on Shabbat in synagogue. He used Jewish, his Jewish lifestyle as the framework for discipling those who would follow him. So he is no doubt thoroughly Jewish. There is a question as to whether he spoke Hebrew or a dialect like Aramaic. And I remember, this sounds like a joke, but it's not. I remember watching a video of the Pope and Benjamin Netanyahu. And Netanyahu said something to this uh, audience about Jesus being Jewish and speaking Hebrew. And the Pope turned to him and said, Aramaic. And Netanyahu turned to him and said, that too. And I found it so amusing that the Prime Minister of Israel was debating with the Pope as to how Jewish Messiah was. And as Prime Minister, he was laying claim to the Israeli Jewishness of Yeshua. That would not have happened a long, not that long ago. In the book of Acts, we see that Paul hears from the Messiah who speaks to him in Hebrew, according to the Greek. It says in the Greek that he heard a voice from heaven speaking in Hebrew. Interestingly, not in Aramaic, in Hebrew. So the resurrected, glorified, ascended Messiah identifies himself to Paul by saying, Ani Yeshua, I am Yeshua. He didn't speak in Latin, Latin, he could have. He didn't speak in English for sure. He didn't speak in Greek. He spoke in Hebrew. And so he showed himself from the eternal realm 
as well in the book of Revelation as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Donuts for all of you. He's the vine, we're the branches. He's Jewish and we, whether Jew or non-Jew, are grafted into him. The root is also Jewish because it's true to the faith of the patriarchs of the Jewish people. As believers, we follow the pattern of the patriarchs. We expect to have a direct relationship with the living God, to experience him, to learn of his ways, to walk faithfully with him to the end of our days. And Paul says it is for the sake of the patriarchs, writing in Romans 11, that Israel's calling is irrevocable and will lead to Israel's full redemption. Paul says this. So all of us are called to honor the fathers of faith by loving the sons and daughters of Israel. When the Jewish root thrives, so will all the branches. This is a principle of horticulture and agriculture. When the root withers, the entire tree dies. So I think as Christian churches come to terms with the Jewish root of their faith, embracing it with love and respect, they will be blessed. That's not based on my opinion or my preference. It's based on the promises of God. And the restoration of the Jewish people, which Paul describes as life from the dead, will help bring wonderful blessings to all. And so we could say it's in the interest of all the Gentile nations to learn to bless the Jewish people. And as they do this, they will also be blessed. One day, the sons and daughters of Gaza will learn to bless the Jewish people. And then they'll be blessed. So every year at Hanukkah, it's good for us to read from John chapter 10, as we've done. It's also good to read the story of Joseph, which comes up for several weeks during the season. And the life of Joseph, it's a life touched by family, hatred and estrangement, by injustice, by cruelty. It tells the story of hope and recovery with a completely different plot line. Because for Joseph, it was not outsiders, but rather it was brothers who were the first source of his sorrow. And yet in the life of Joseph, God was at work, God was present, God was with him through what could have seemed to him to be only years of loss and sorrow. But God's victory was by his spirit and by his might and not by the power of armed resistance or human strength. So the, the stories of Hanukkah, the life of Joseph, we remember what was taken from us can be restored. Joseph lived with such hope, as we'll read in coming weeks. He refused to give in to negativity or to despair. He worked, he served, he lived like a man who had a future. And only God could have taken him from prison to prime minister in Egypt. Only God could elevate him to a place where he made history. But we shouldn't be naive. Joseph could have given in to bitterness. He could have become a sour person. The same thing could happen to any one of us. He had so many bad experiences, so much disappointment, so much betrayal, so much injustice, so much unfairness, 
But God had a plan for Joseph, and it was during the times of all that difficulty that God was building character and faithfulness into Joseph. The Lord was holding on to the future that he had in mind for Joseph. So the Lord was being faithful in adversity. There were times, I'm sure, when it might have seemed impossible to Joseph. There were times when it may have just seemed like a terrible dream. But then there was a moment, and we'll read about it. It was just the right time when Joseph is restored to his brothers and his father, and they were restored to him. All those dark times came to an end. The guilt, the shame, the regrets, the sense of loss. It was time for life from the dead. In fact, that's how his father Jacob described it. My son was dead. He's now alive. And so it's resurrection life at work. Life from the dead is part of the Joseph story. Life from the dead is part of the Hanukkah story. Life from the dead is part of the Yeshua story. And that's why the Jewish apostle Peter wrote to the Jewish people in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, and said, In your hearts revere Messiah as Adonai. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Why do you have hope? Where does your hope come from? We cultivate, we nurture hope. Otherwise, we risk becoming hopeless. And the hopeless person can never give a reason to anyone about why they have hope because they don't have it. The hopeless one cannot tell anyone about the God of hope. Peter says, we can answer with gentleness and respect And I can tell you this, if you have hope in these dark days, then your light can shine. If you have hope anyway, and you can respond to people with gentleness and respect, you will stand out. You can make a difference. And I want to remind you again, if you see hateful responses on any of your posts on Facebook or whatever, if you you, get anti-Semitic or anti-Zionist, anti-Israel responses, take this to heart. Just delete it. Just put it behind you. Don't engage. Just hide them, ban them. Report them if you must. It's okay. But don't reply to them on that platform because you will simply reward their hostility with more aggravation for yourself. Speak to those who are genuine with gentleness and respect. Romans 15, 4, our last scripture. The Tanakh, the scriptures, give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. Let's spread the hope wherever we can because that's the message of Hanukkah and it's the message of Messiah. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of hope and you are a God of resurrection life. 
And let us shine brightly even in the darkness, we pray. And let our love for you and our love for Messiah lead us to wholeheartedly live for you and share the good news with others all around. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Well, would you please rise? I want to invite everyone to the Hanukkah Oneg after the service, latkes and Krispy Kreme donuts. We'll go to the Shalom Center next door for our Oneg. And if you want to talk to me, meet me over there. No converse. I'm not sticking around. Take your stuff with you. But first, <laughs> and it's not because I want to get a donut. It's I want to get over there where there are donuts. And for those of you who are watching online or listening by podcast, would you consider a generous contribution during this Hanukkah season? You can go to our webpage, bethisraelnow.com slash giving for all the details. And for those who make special end-of-year donations, please consider including Beth Israel in your end-of-year giving. And now Aaron's blessing. Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace in the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. So from Sandy and me and the entire Beth Israel team, thanks for joining us. Shabbat Shalom. Hanukkah Sameach.